right. Good morning, church. Thank you for thank you for joining us today as we open the word. Um, for those of you who I have not met, my name is Rob, one of the elders here at the Hallows. So welcome. Um, this summer, while Pastor Andrew is on sabbatical, we've had the opportunity to hear, um, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, different voices in our congregation preach on different topics and different verses throughout the word. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been encouraged to hear our men step up and preach, um, and today you get me. So um, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Um, things aren't looking great for me as I was born and raised here in Edmonds, so technically it would be biblical if you guys ran me off the stage. So um, please pray with me and we will get rolling, open the word. Jesus, join us today as we study the word. Lord, I pray that you would pray that you would calm my nerves and open the hearts of those listening. Lord, um, as I preach, move me aside, move me off this stage and fill the room. Jesus, you have been so gracious to me in giving me a new perspective on this passage and a new heart for this parable, Lord. I pray that you would do the same for those sitting here today. Reveal to them your truth, breathe new life into this passage, and may the good news of your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, lead us towards true compassion. In your name, amen. So one of my absolute favorite things to do is, um, is cuddle up and read the children's storybook Bible with my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, Scout. Um, the best is on like a lazy Saturday morning. I'll run to PCC and grab Kendra coffee, breakfast sandwich, and come home, and, and Scout will jump up on my, jump up on my lap, and, um, and we'll flip through the stories and the parables and the pictures in these Bibles. We, we have a couple of them, um, and they're actually quite well done. Um, they capture the, the essence of these biblical stories in a way that makes them understandable to a three-year-old, but equally insightful to a 36-year-old. So when Pastor Jeff asked if I'd like to preach this summer, um, I started to kick around ideas of, of passages to cover, and I asked Scout, and she said, kind of in, in not so many words, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and so in, in talking to her more about that, she said, because we should be like the Good Samaritan. So that's what I've spent the last few months studying and understanding, because we all should be like the Good Samaritan, right? So having been a Christian for a few decades, I've read this story literally hundreds of times. And looking back, I've taken it exactly how my three-year-old daughter did. Be like the Good Samaritan. Don't be like the religious guys. Check. Got it. Good to go. Can do. But something fascinating has happened over the past few months. This passage has come alive. It's deepened. And the Holy Spirit has illuminated it in new ways that I'm excited to share with you today. So that is my prayer and my hope today as we read and study Luke 10, 25 through 37, the story of the Good Samaritan. Please read it, or let me read it for you. Then an expert of the law, my slides up, good, good. Then an expert of the law stood up to test him, Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him, how do you read it? 
He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. He, Jesus, told him, Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. The same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed him mercy, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. If you know me, you know I love things to be organized, so I've organized my thoughts and broken these 18 verses down into three sections. First section, an impossible ask. Section two, silencing our inner lawyer. And section three, true compassion. So section one, an impossible ask. Let's read it again, gain a little context, and I'll answer a few questions. Then an expert of the law stood up to test him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he, Jesus, asked him, how do you read it? He, the lawyer, answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. So for some context, this all happened towards the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Because Jesus didn't have social media, wasn't on Joe Rogan's podcast, didn't have Netflix miniseries about him, he had to have a lot of conversations. And he had to rely solely on public speaking engagements. In that age, it was common for teachers to move town to town and, and sit with the leaders of those towns and elaborate on their, elaborate on their thoughts and their teachings. Keep in mind, we know this is Jesus talking. They didn't. If you have a red-letter Bible, then you really know when Jesus is talking. But to this lawyers and the others, Jesus may still have, have been just, just another teacher. Think Ted Talker. They were hearing. And Jesus had done, Jesus had done up, up in this point in his ministry, he had done some, some miracles and was starting to get some likes and some views, but was still relatively obscure. So this expert of the law, or lawyer, asks Jesus a loaded question. He's, he's vetting him. It's, it's very reasonable to assume that this, um, that this lawyer was, was intentionally trying to trip up Jesus. So he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus, Jesus sees right through this question and, and pushes it back and says, what is written in the law? And the lawyer answers by quoting the great commandment, which we read earlier from Matthew 22. Simple question and answer, right? This literally could be the world's shortest sermon. 
Church, do this and you will live. But when preparing for the summer, summer sermon series, Pastor Andrew spent some time with the men who would be preaching. And he, and he shared with us in, in Andrew fashion some, some good principles and techniques about how to prepare a sermon. And, and one of the things he shared um, when studying a passage and preparing is to watch out for the deadly bees. I, examples of the deadly bees would be like, be like this person, don't be like that person. Or be good, be better, be more disciplined. You get the idea. So, so the point of this passage isn't just be better. Be a keeper of this commandment. There's got to be more to this passage. R.C. Sproul comments on this passage by saying, There is no one, not one person, who has kept the force of this commandment for the last five minutes, let alone their entire lives. For to say that you love God with all your mind and all your soul and all of your strength and all of your heart really is to say that you never sin. Because it would be impossible to sin if you loved God in this way. And that's only, that's only half of it. We still have the whole love your neighbor as yourself part. And he goes on to say that the love your neighbor at times is even more difficult than to love God. For God is altogether lovely. There is no just reason for us not to love God. But there are plenty of reasons why we would find it difficult to love all of our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. So what I believe Jesus is saying here by asking the lawyer this question is something we all need to hear. And that is, there is one way to heaven, and it is an impossible route, apart from Jesus. There is one way to heaven, and it is an impossible route, apart from Jesus. The lawyer asks, what must I do? The answer to that question, be perfect. Enter grace, that unearned ill-deserved favor that we have from Jesus. He, Jesus, loved the Lord with all his heart and his soul and strength and mind, and he loved his neighbor as, him, as himself so that we might inherit eternal life. That is the real answer to the question. So let's talk about the lawyer. Section two, silencing our inner lawyer. M moving on to the second part of this passage, verse 29. Um, again, I'll provide some, un some context, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what happens here is the lawyer immediately begins to feel the weight of this commandment. He begins to feel the impossibility of the task that we just mentioned. In reality, he wanted to find out who wasn't his neighbor— and who he did not have to love. I shared earlier that if you know me, you, you know I love organization. Um, another little fun fact about Rob is um, I have a very difficult time with junior high's aged boys. Like, I get it. I was one. A lot going on. A lot going on. But they're a difficult demographic for me. So, if God was to, like, 
give me a sanctification bath, I think it would look a lot like being a junior high boy camp counselor. And, and in 2011, like, pretty much that's what happened. Um, I was approached by a, by a beloved teacher of, of mine and asked to mentor a group of 10 junior high boys. So I, I would take, I would take, once a month, take a lunch break, like a long lunch break, and go to my old junior high and take a few hours off and, and meet with these guys. And, and looking back, super rewarding. I know God had me there for some very specific reasons, um, but it was a challenge for sure. One of the things that I instated when we would meet was an ask anything time. So towards the, towards the back half of our time together, I would pass out slips of paper to all the guys and have them, have them write something on it and pass it back just to make sure it was anonymous and it wasn't like, oh, only one person passed in the paper. I know who asked that question. So it created this anon- anonymousness. Um, and most of the questions I got back looked a lot like this question from the lawyer. Right? They were, they were questions that they asked to try and justify themselves. Questions like, is bleep a swear word? Or can I say bleep? And you're like, okay. Um, is, is kissing a sin? Or, or how far can I go with my girlfriend? Um, or my personal favorite, can God microwave a burrito so hot that he can't eat it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. But in, but in reality, we all have this little inner lawyer inside of us. Um, the inner lawyer who justifies where your money is or isn't going. The inner lawyer who justifies who or who not to invite to a party or a Bible study. The inner lawyer who justifies if you should drink or how many more you can have. The inner lawyer who justifies sleeping in instead of getting up and going to church or spending time in the Word. Our inner lawyers are are sneaky and well-practiced. I know mine has way more than four years of law school. So what we need is more Jesus and less inner lawyer. So, So how do we silence our inner lawyers? Let's move on to section three and find out. Please follow along as we talk about true compassion, and I read verses 30 through 37. The kind of the the meat of this passage. Jesus took up this question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him and beat him and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. He, then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these Three, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. For context, travel back with me about 2,000 years. um, And let's look at the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It actually actually gets a lot of press in the Bible. Jesus mentions it, and, and it's traveled by Jesus multiple times. It was infamous. 
um, because of the danger that it possessed, it was often called the way of blood. The journey from Jerusalem was, a, was from Jerusalem to Jericho, down to Jericho, was about 18 miles through an arid, rocky desert. Um, I read that it's some of the most barren, rocky, and desolate terrain on the face of the earth. It was notorious for bandits and thieves, often Samaritans, who would prey on lone travelers because of the isolation. Now follow this part. We have four men traveling this road. Two of them were members of the clergy. Think pastors. In that time, many of the religious leaders lived in Jericho. Okay? So Jericho was full of priests and, and, and Levites. And Jerusalem was where the temple was. So they made this trip often to carry out their religious duties. So these men leaving Jerusalem and going to Jericho, these, these pastors were coming home from church. While researching the way of blood, it became clear how, how truly narrow this road was. It's almost like a, a deer game trail winding through this, this desert area. The passage we read says the priest and the Levite passed on the other side. And, and I've always read that to mean like the other side of the road, like thinking 20, 30 feet away. However, depending on where along this, this road it took place, they very well could have had to step over this dying man. So it's reasonable to assume that these pastors, while coming home from church, had to step over a dying man because of how narrow that road was. To me, that hits a little different. And why would they do that? Let's jump back to Luke 9 for a moment, one chapter before this, and we read, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went to, Samar to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he, then he and his disciples went on to another village. That is how little James and John thought of the Samaritans. They were ready to call down fire from heaven to destroy the entire race because they didn't welcome Jesus into their city. R.C. Sproul writes that the Samaritans were a group with whom the Jews had no dealings, who were considered outside the purity of the faith of Israel. And, and in Jewish oral tradition, in the Halakha, it is specifically stated that the neighbor of the Jew is the Jew, that non-Israelites are not considered neighbors. So Jesus was up against a deeply entrenched tradition that distorted the meaning of the great commandment. Another commentary I read, read put it, puts it this way. About 750 years before this, the Assyrians conquered this area of northern Israel and deported all of the wealthy and middle-class Jews from the area. Then they moved in a pagan population from afar. These pagans intermarried with the lowest classes of remaining Jews in northern Israel, and from these people came the Samaritans. Generally speaking, the Jews of that day hated the Samaritans. 
They, were cons- they considered them compromising half-breeds who corrupted the worship of true God. There was deep-seated prejudice amounting almost to hatred standing between the Jews and the Samaritans. So three men came upon the wounded man, but only the Samaritan had compassion on him. That tells me the story has a lot to do with compassion. So let us look at compassion through three statements. The first is true compassion takes action. We read in verse 33 that a Samaritan on his way came up to him, and when he saw him, he had compassion. We go on to read that the feeling of compassion, he, he went over to him and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. What we see here is the difference between feeling compassion and having compassion. For true compassion calls forth action. A a few months ago, I was driving to work um, four streets over on 220th, and I I saw a young woman who, who appeared homeless and likely due to drugs, and um, she, she was trailing a young man who appeared the same. They weren't doing well. It was, it was 6 a.m., and they're, they're walking, kind of marching up the road, and um, s- suddenly the young man turned around and started, like, frantically and, and wildly kicking at her and, and trying to hit her. And, and seeing that really stirred up, like, a protector instinct in me. <clears throat> um, there's a very short list of things that I hate, and... Abuse towards women makes that list. So p- part of what made me so angry when I, when I saw this was I don't want to be the person who drives by and doesn't do anything if I see that. So here I am driving 6 a.m., 220th, driving towards the freeway, and, and I, I'm thinking to myself, do I, do I turn around and confront this man? Do I call the police? Do I take this young woman and try to find her safety or help in some way? And ultimately, in my, um, I believe, like righteous anger and frustration, what I decided to do was, was call a friend of mine um, who had lost about three years of his life to drugs in the street and by God's grace is doing well and thriving. <clears throat> Um, and I talked him through the situation and, and what I had witnessed, and he shared with me some super insightful truths that I want to I pass along. Um, he shared the reality of what would happen if I would have stopped and done one of those three things. Pretty much nothing. He shared with me how the only way to help someone in situations like that is to be ready to give everything I have. Not just medical care, shelter, food, water, a ride, whatever else they might be expressing that they need, but be willing to do whatever it takes to get them well. R.C. Sproul, I know I'm quoting him a lot, but he goes on to say that Jesus goes on to show that the Samaritan's compassion was not simply a feeling, but was authentic, for real compassion calls forth action. He bound up his wounds, used provisions he had made for his own trip 
to minister to the painful wounds on this man, and he set him on his own beast of burden and took him to an inn to care for him. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest with myself, I have to admit that I I often overlook the wounds, am stiff with my own oil and my own wine. I don't want to get my vehicle dirty, and I want to just pay the innkeeper on a good day. If true compassion takes action, then, then I believe that I need to get my hands dirty. How do I do that? I need Jesus. I need Jesus to give me eyes to see the wounds. I need Jesus to give me faith to share my provisions and assurance that he is enough when those provisions are running thin. True compassion will, will thin your wallet. It'll disrupt your schedule. It'll use up your supplies, and it will dirty up your stuff. But that's how you know you're doing it right. So moving on, true compassion towards anyone but them. I mentioned earlier about that deep-seated hatred and cultural disdain between the Jews and the Samaritans and um, Jesus used this conflict as it was like readily understood. His audience like would have very much known what that conflict was all about. Even um, talking about Samaritans was provocative. Like that's why the lawyer at the end says um, the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. That's how much he disliked. These, these people groups disliked each other. So in preparing for this sermon, I, I heard this hatred compared to um, a bunch of different dynamics. But I don't think they get it right. I I heard it compared to black versus white in the Jim Crow era. I heard it compared to political tension, left versus right, or or Trump versus Biden, um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict over Gaza and the West Bank. Um, But I don't don't think those are right either. I, I think it's more like When you and your wife are struggling to get pregnant and you hear of a young couple who decides to get an abortion, how do you show compassion to that person? Or a a drunk driver who already has three DUIs and takes the life of a, a son or a daughter, how do you show compassion to that person? That anyone but them person? So I ask you, who is that one person in your life, that anyone but them person? I believe the point being made here by Jesus is is that's exactly who we're supposed to love, exactly who we're supposed to show compassion towards, regardless of their sins, of their color, their belief, their upbringing, or their social status. So when I, when I was in my early 20s, I remember going to Mexico with a group of friends, and um, to, to this day, I still have like a super vivid memory. We were, we had gotten off the boat, and we were walking through a town, and um, I remember coming around a corner and seeing, seeing this old woman sitting there in the gutter, and she was, she was clearly destitute. She was wrapped in like filthy clothing, and 
blankets and clothes and just kind of huddled up there. And we came around the corner, and here's, you know, six wealthy Americans coming around the corner, and she looked up, and, and I, th- I think she gestured for food or water or money or something. Like, I don't recall that. What I do recall was one of the gals who was with us, her name is Renee, she, she didn't hesitate for a second. And she, she walked over to this woman, and she got down, and she pressed her cheek against this woman's cheek and cradled her and put her arm around her and just sat with her. And I don't, I don't think or know that that was my anyone but them person, that this lady was my anyone but them person. But I share this story because of how beautiful a picture of true compassion that is. Of getting down in the gutter and showing love to a dirty, poor, diseased beggar. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters... You did for me. Or whatever you did for the worst of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. And again in Matthew 5, Jesus corrects this type of thinking during his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is quoting Jesus. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of the Father in heaven. In a passionate sermon about this parable, John Piper, um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he, he says, my conviction when I read this, is that this being the passage, is that I need to change. I, I don't need to figure out who my neighbor is. That is not the issue. I need to change. I need a new heart that can't walk by on the other side, whoever is over there. If they are even close to being a human. So how can we have compassion like the Good Samaritan? How can we have compassion towards the anyone but them person? We need Jesus. So let's close out the sermon looking at him. Remember what I said about the deadly bees at the beginning of the, this sermon here? I mean, we are white-knuckling it enough and my goal here is not to pile on it's not to say be better do more 
do this, do that, be like this person. That is not my goal. Taking a look at Acts chapter 8, I'm going to read it and explain. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him as the first Christian martyr. But Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So remember, Acts is basically Luke part two, post-resurrection. So following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we see here Philip, a newly appointed deacon, going down to Samaria. And Peter and John joined him. The same John who in Luke 9 was rebuked by Jesus for saying, Lord, do you want me to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? So what changed? They met the resurrected Jesus. His love and the power of the empty tomb drove out the prejudice and hate from their hearts and their minds. Do you want to inherit eternal life? Do you want to silence your inner lawyer? Do you want to have compassion? Do you want to have compassion towards anyone but them? Then meet Jesus and introduce others to him. Please pray with me. Jesus, we desperately need you. Our knuckles are white from trying to hold on and be better and do more, Lord. But we, we can't do any of this on our own. We give our inner lawyer a megaphone. We step over those in need on the way to and from church, Lord. And we, we need you to change us, to, to remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, Lord. Thank you for illuminating this passage in new and powerful ways, Lord. And for your son and his death, burial, and resurrection. Which make all of this possible, Lord. In your name, amen.